Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Welcome, Regenerators. This is the eighth installment in my coverage of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation by Paul Hawken. And today, I hope you've got an appetite for learning about the impact of food. Many of you have been with me since the beginning, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the feedback I've received thus far. Comments like, thank you for distilling this important work, and I thought I'd never have the time to read Paul's book, and this podcast solved that for me. Really, it's helped me to keep going. For those that are new to this series, I encourage you to go back to the introduction. To make your journey easy, links to each episode are included in chronological order in the show notes for each Regeneration episode. You can visit caremorebebetter.com for access to the complete series simply by clicking on the Regeneration category of podcasts and scroll on through. As you peruse our site, you'll find full transcripts, YouTube videos of our guest interviews, guest bios, and links to their social and contact details. And you can even leave me a voicemail and share your thoughts by clicking the microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner, or send me an email note from the contact page. I'd love to hear your thoughts and any questions you might have for Paul Hawken. At the end of this series, I'll be submitting a list of community questions to Paul so he can answer them directly through a blog on caremorebebetter.com. I encourage all of you to join our community and sign up for our newsletter. As your welcome gift, you'll receive a five-page guide to help unleash your inner activist and organize any effort you're inspired to take on. It could be focused on climate activism, I would hope, or perhaps a social impact initiative that you're helping to spearhead. Once you join our mailing list, you'll receive a single weekly email which includes notes about our weekly shows any upcoming events, and from time to time, suggestions for actions you can take to make a difference. Okay, are you hungry yet? Let's talk about food. As we commence our exploration, it's important to think about where our food comes from. When Cristofo Colombo, otherwise known as Christopher Columbus, came to the Americas, he arrived to find a bounty of food that had not been in global circulation. From these exploits, we gained access to staples, including potatoes and corn, and delights like cacao, blueberries, and maple syrup. Today, corn comprises most of our grain consumption by weight. And as Paul notes on page 171, most of the world no longer needs to seek food. It comes to us in an extraordinarily complex and sophisticated system that has created unparalleled abundance. However, today's food system has become the single greatest cause of global warming, soil loss, chemical poisoning, chronic disease, rainforest destruction, and dying oceans. We have our problem laid out well for us, don't we? But let's not forget the lessons we learned as we covered regenerative agriculture in part five of this series. The very practices we employ to secure food for our future can restore soil, increase its carbon sequestration capacity draw down atmospheric carbon, and ultimately regenerate Earth. And one thing we can all do to help support this effort is focus on real, whole foods, shunning the processed, chemically-laden foods that have become a mainstay in Western diets. 
Move through the periphery of your grocery store instead and limit your shopping in its interior. Reduce your intake of refined sugars and salty snacks and your taste buds will thank you. You'll regain a refined palate and a plum or a berry will begin to taste like the dessert it was always meant to be. As we begin eating this way and shopping this way, we will see our collective health improve and we'll be more aware of food waste. Cutting the tops off of carrots and skinning onions or removing wilted leaves from the heads of lettuce will happen in your home as opposed to somewhere else in the supply chain. You'll become more aware. You might even start composting. Food waste is a problem most of us don't see in our day-to-day lives. Sure, some leftovers may end up in the waste bin, but that is a drop in the bucket compared to where most waste occurs. Imperfect harvesting, spoilage and transport, rejection by food procurement companies, and that which isn't sold in stores can all end up landfill waste that generates methane gas instead of becoming healthy compost for soil. It spurs on global warming instead of playing a role in reversing it. And here's a shocking statistic. As much as 90% of food waste ends up in landfill. Quote, Meanwhile, 135 million people worldwide struggle daily with acute hunger and food insecurity, and 800 million are undernourished. That was from page 172. Solutions to food waste in manufacturing include increasing supply chain efficiencies, solar-powered cold storage on location, donating surplus food to food banks, upcycling surplus food into new products like soups, flavorings, sweets, and supplements, and recycling food waste into renewable energy and soil amendments. In your home, you can do this too. You can meal plan to prevent overbuying at the grocery store. You can freeze food before it spoils for future use. You can repurpose scraps of food and cycle through food in your refrigerator, pantry, and freezer to avoid waste due to spoilage and expiration. And, as I mentioned earlier, you can compost. There are over 400,000 species of plants on Earth, and we only widely consume 200 of them. Rice, wheat, and corn provide 43% of the calories we consume. But did you know that edible plants include 2,050 mushroom species, 387 types of fern, and 275 bamboo species? How many foods do you eat each week? How about each month or year? It's good for our health to vary the food we eat. It positively impacts our gut health and the second brain of our digestive and nutrient transport system. Fueling our bodies in this way provides greater stores of complex nutrients, antioxidants, and essential fatty acids. You know, those omega-3s which have been shown to benefit almost every body system that you have. They do this for one simple reason. They're included in every single cell in your body. And without enough of the right fats, guess what? Your health can fall into a negative cascade. Eric Tonsmeyer of Yale led a study that analyzed the potential of perennial vegetables, those that grow year after year without needing to be reseeded, sequestering carbon and providing a bounty each year. This includes herbs, berries, tree fruits, bushes, cacti, and palms. In my little garden and yard, I have a couple of plum trees, a self-fruitful apple, citrus trees, oregano, basil, thyme, mint, strawberries, gooseberries, and whatever volunteers show up from my compost, usually some tomatoes or onions. 
When we eat a little of everything and when we grow some of our own food and herbs, we are benefiting ecosystems and ensuring the farmer's systems can be regenerative. By focusing on only a few crops and types of food, however, we limit our ability to really build a solution. But here I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that access is a real issue. Many people simply don't have the access that they would need to a wide variety of foods. This ultimately means that with food, we have a social justice issue. One example can be found in the mountains of Peru, where potatoes are a staple and where not much other fresh food is really available. In these areas, malnourishment is the mainstay, resulting in a cascade of negative community effects. In fact, before the vitamin angels commenced their important work, children in these communities were born blind because they simply didn't have enough access to prenatal vitamin A. Many lack sufficient nutrients for their bones to adequately form. They wouldn't be able to walk until the age of three. Vitamin Angels, this incredible not-for-profit, sought to end nutrition-related infant blindness by offering one single powerful vitamin, vitamin A, to communities around the globe. They've now successfully reached that goal and have upped the ante. They now seek to end nutrition-related infant mortality on a global scale. You can learn more about the Vitamin Angels and their important work by reviewing my interview with their founder, Howard Schiffer, which was episode 20, published in June. I'll be sure to include the link with show notes to make your life easy. And we also know that fresh food and produce is lacking in many inner-city, minority-dominated communities in the United States. These food apartheids must end. It starts with access. So how do we get there? Localization is a really important and clear way that we can seek to end food apartheids. It is done by supporting more regional and local food sourcing. If we produce and procure more food from our local environments, guess what? We have a far lesser carbon footprint. Not only is there less waste due to spoilage, there are fewer logistics, a reduced need for refrigeration and trucking. Your food will be fresher, and it will support local economies, ensuring the community that you're in stands a better chance to thrive. 34% of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by the food system as a whole, and that negative impact of food can be dramatically altered for the better if we'll all just be a little wiser and rely a little less on prepackaged and processed foods. We can support local food. We can go to farmers markets to get our produce. Here's the reality. Big food, just like Big Pharma, has created as many problems as it seeks to solve. Quote, Big food is another word for mass-produced animal foods and ultra-processed food-like concoctions made of soy, corn, fats, sugar, salt, chemicals, and starch. Also known as junk food, it makes up 60% of the diets in the United States and 54% in the UK. Inadequate nutrition and disease are inseparable because the ubiquity, addictiveness, and constant promotion of industrialized food, nearly 75% of Americans are obese or overweight, and one-third of Americans are either pre-diabetic or have type 2 diabetes, end quote. And this was from page 176. This is a big, fat truth. It's ugly. It's no fun. But it's our reality. Furthermore, the fact that human-made fats, including partially hydrogenated or fully hydrogenated oils, otherwise known as trans fats, are similar in their chemical construct to plastic, only one carbon different. And that stuff should really scare you stiff. 
Heck, that's what it does to your arteries and cellular walls anyways. It limits your body's ability to have intercellular communication. In fact, if you leave a tub of margarine in a hot garage, no insects will go for it. But if you do the same with butter, guess what? Flies will seek it out. This should tell you everything you need to know about processed foods. Ultra-processing turns our foods from nourishment to just plain caloric filler. In the case of trans fats, commonly found in margarine, shortening, peanut butter, and processed foods of all sorts, it turns them into a slow poison. We don't need big food to feed us, or big pharma to baste our bodies with a cocktail of drugs that treat a myriad of symptoms caused by big food. We need to change our food systems. Common solutions to big food can come from your local CSAs or community-supported agriculture. You can opt to receive a weekly box of fresh fruit and vegetables that come from your local area. You'll get carrots that don't immediately turn rubbery and cucumbers that have real crunch to them. Your body and your community will thank you. Because when you nourish your body with proper nutrition instead of a bunch of filler foods, you'll notice a difference in your health. If you're overweight, you'll likely trim down. You'll notice your body feels more satisfied and less hungry. As time goes on, you'll crave less sugar and less salt because your body will be in balance. This is the nature of eating a varied diet of good, healthy food. Unhealthy cravings subside as your gut health improves and with it your mood. Okay, I've peppered in enough of my professional knowledge as a natural products industry veteran, and perhaps we can geek out on that topic more with a future guest. But for now, let's get right back to Paul's book, Regeneration. If you're following along in the book, you've likely already come to the conclusion that part of the problem with our food systems is that we've commoditized foods. We've reduced their value and pushed monoculture farming practices forward to shave a penny off the price here and there. We've subsidized farming of filler foods to feed livestock and keep our bellies full at the cost of our health and at the cost of the true value of good food. This means we really need to rally behind food and push for decommodification of our food system. We'll need to advocate for soil restoration and regenerative agriculture to repair soil loss and the ravages of a farming culture that for too long has relied on the plant killer glyphosate, also known as Roundup. We'll need to advocate for soil restoration and regenerative agriculture to repair soil loss and the ravages of a farming culture that for too long relied on the plant killer glyphosate. Shopping for foods that are fair trade, organic certified, and non-GMO verified are all great ways to ensure you're part of the change. And when you seek to celebrate, chill out, and enjoy happy hour, reach for a microbrew or a local organic wine instead of a can of Coors or two-buck chuck, because let's be real, this practice extends to everything we consume, and that means our beverages too. So as we think about growing food, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you know about pollinators? Many of us think only of bees when we talk about pollinators, but yellow jackets, a common pest wasp, also pollinates flowering trees. Ants, also often considered pests, do the same for many species of plants and trees. In tropical climes, biting midges pollinate our cacao trees, without which we would not be able to experience the marvels and joy of chocolate. Indeed, we must respect insects in all their forms, even those we find less desirable than a dragonfly or a honeybee. 
This is for one very simple reason. One out of every three bites of food we eat comes from a pollinator. There are roughly 5.5 million species of insects on Earth, and that's 80% of animal life. This means we simply do not know enough about their impact on the climate and also our food sources. The reality is we know very little about the ecosystems insects collectively affect. We must be concerned about the rapid pace of their extinction. In an earlier chapter, we mentioned the need for pollinator corridors with flowering trees, plants, and bushes planted north to south and south to north. They would be there to ensure that our insect ecosystems do not suffer from their habitat fragmentation and continue their downward spiral. The biological weapons that we use against them don't necessarily discriminate either. This was clear when Bayer Monsanto created glyphosate, or Roundup, and released genetically modified corn that included toxic pesticides in its genetic makeup. Entire flocks of monarch butterflies perished as they pollinated poisonous amber waves of grain. Solutions are many, but first and foremost, we must preserve natural areas and habitats, and we must stop the ubiquitous use of pesticides. The extractive economy we've built is what has landed us in this predicament, and it has to stop. I think you're with me here. And so let's step again into a forest of trees. Unlike vegetables, which need to be planted each year and disturb the soil, reduce its ability to store maximum levels of carbon, trees and shrubs produce food year after year without doing so. They keep the soil, its microbes, fungi, and critters intact, all of which sequester carbon. And their branches and trunks, which continue to grow over their long lives, also store carbon. The carbon-rich soil they help to produce is more nutrient-dense and can support more life, regenerating earth. By incorporating cover crops and also using regenerative farming practices, the nutrient-packed nature of current and future forest farms can really thrive. It's a change in pattern, it's a change in the way we've been doing things, but it's catching on. To learn more about regenerative agriculture, I encourage you to go back to the earlier episode on land. I also have a future episode coming with Tom Newmark, where we discuss his farm, Finca Luna Nueva in Costa Rica. He is the founder of the Carbon Underground. That episode will air on November 3rd. Stay tuned for that. As we prepare to go through the ending of this chapter, I, uh, well, let's just put it this way. I was a little reticent to begin. And that's because it was written by one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Safran Foer. Jonathan Safran Foer wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Everything is Illuminated. It's an incredible novelized depiction of his family's history, written with two story arcs that intersect in one of the most beautifully written pieces of prose that I've yet read. I knew when I read this first book that Jonathan Safran Foer was a vegetarian. I am not. But each day I get a little closer. I bought and tried to read his work on the topic of vegetarianism and the reasons for shifting to such a diet. It's called Eating Animals, and I've failed to finish it. So I guess that's my confession for the day. I'm not a vegan. I'm not even a vegetarian. I'm part of this food problem we've all created because I don't always only consume regeneratively farmed animal products. I eat out, and I sometimes eat animals when I eat out but I'm getting better and better about my choices as time goes on. And this work, this deep dive into regeneration is helping me on my way. 
I hope it does the same for you too. Well, here goes. Paul Hawken opens this essay with the introduction on page 189. Quote, Jonathan Safran Foer is the author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, from which this essay is excerpted, and Eating Animals, a New York Times bestseller published in 2009. His focus in both books is the impact of animal food on climate change. There is no agreement in the literature about the amount of greenhouse gas emissions generated by the meat and dairy industry. The UN's Food Agriculture Organization, in a non-peer-reviewed study entitled Livestock's Long Shadow, calculated it to be 18% of total emissions. End quote. The photographic choice that opens these pages also put me off. It was of a young calf staring directly at the camera. It shook me. Its soft black fur and smooth muzzle brings me back to my childhood and a moment when a young calf sucked on my fingers as it would its mother's teat. I grew up close to food. There were many family farms where I grew up in Southern Oregon. Everyone had a pasture, and many took their animals to the fair to show and sell each year. We raised chickens and rabbits for food. I had a pony, and my neighbors on one side had an alfalfa field, which posed some problems, as I'm sure you could imagine. And on the other side, we had a neighbor who grew raspberries and rose and squash and other vegetables. Blackberry brambles knit well-worn fences around our property that separated our pastures and provided summertime feasts. But this was not industrial agriculture. We exemplified localized food. As I began reading Jonathan's essay, I assumed, oh great, he's coming for the meager meat I have left in my diet. (laughs) And I was actually surprised to see that that wasn't the case. Instead, I saw more understanding and maturity than I expected and far less judgment. I don't know why I was surprised. I shouldn't have been. I mean, even in my conversation with Paul, he shared that it really wasn't an attack on meat eaters, that we just needed to be more mindful, and that going after your dinner plate wasn't necessarily the solution. All right, here it is. Quote, this book is an argument for a collective act to eat differently. Specifically, no animal products before dinner. That is a difficult argument to make, both because the topic is so fraught and because of the sacrifice involved. Most people like the smell and taste of meat, dairy, and eggs. Most people value the roles animal products play in their lives and aren't prepared to adopt new eating identities. Most people have eaten animal products at almost every meal since they were children, and it's hard to change lifelong habits, even when they are freighted with pleasure and identity. Those are meaningful challenges, not only worth acknowledging, but necessary to acknowledge. Changing the way we eat is simple compared with converting the world's power grid or overcoming the influence of powerful lobbyists to pass carbon tax legislation or ratifying a significant international treaty on greenhouse gas emissions, but it isn't simple. End quote. And that can be found on page 190. And my first reaction, heck, I could do that but it will mean giving up dairy in my coffee and my tea. But still, I could do that. Perhaps not every day, but most. And perhaps also, I would feel justified in not doing so, not limiting myself when one of my neighbors gives me a dozen eggs from their hen house. I could live with the spirit of this recommendation, if nothing else, and reduce or eliminate all animal products before dinner. That couldn't be that hard, right? Well, it won't be easy, and as he says, it isn't simple, but it's doable and I'm going to give it a go. 
He ends this essay with a series of bulleted facts about our approach to animal foods and its impact on our climate. Here they are. Quote, The current climate change is the first caused by an animal and not by a natural event. Since the advent of agriculture approximately 12,000 years ago, humans have destroyed 83% of all wild animals and half of all plants. Globally, humans use 59% of all the land capable of growing crops to grow food for livestock. There are approximately 30 farmed animals for every human on the planet. In 2018, 99% of the animals eaten were raised on factory farms. On average, Americans consume twice the recommended intake of protein. People who eat diets rich in animal protein are four times as likely to die of cancer as those who eat diets low in animal protein. About 80% of deforestation occurs to clear land for crops for livestock and grazing. Animal agriculture is responsible for 91% of Amazonian deforestation. Forests contain more carbon than do all exploitable fossil fuel reserves. Oh, Jonathan, you started so soft, but each of those bullets is like a spear. Yes, I know. I know that our factory farming practices are hugely problematic. So where do we go from here? Do we all seek to become vegan? Perhaps not. And that's okay too. But the many points covered in this chapter on food show us that we can each make a difference. One forkful or one spoonful or gulp at a time. If we can be more mindful of our consumptive practices, if we can reduce our reliance on factory farms and focus on procurement of localized, real, whole foods, while also reducing our consumption of animal products, we can begin this hard task of reversing climate change. The more of us that act in such a way, the stronger the pressures will be on big food and big agriculture, and even big oil, to change their ways to shift their practices to regenerative methods, to limit their production of products that we may not need so much anymore. We can plant gardens of flowering bushes and trees that produce food for our families and support our pollinators. We can live in the beauty of nature and be part of its restoration by getting closer to our food sources. This really is a hopeful book, each step of the way. And if enough of us really do the hard work of pushing for change, that change will eventually come from places that seemed impossible only a decade ago. Perhaps Chevron, Shell, and BP will become green energy companies that help us rebuild our energy infrastructures. Perhaps Big Ag and Big Food will similarly act, jump on the bandwagon, and become truly regenerative. It is all possible. So as we wrap up, I want to thank you, each and every one of you, for coming on this journey. I hope you'll send me a note with questions for Paul or thoughts on what we can do to support the regeneration movement. And if you have a story in mind that you think needs to be told, please share it. I'm here and I'm all ears. I'd also love for you to share this podcast series on regeneration with your community. You could post the link on your social pages or send a message to a few friends that you think need to hear it. We're all in this together, after all, and it will take our collective effort to reduce global warming so that future generations can thrive and so that we can enjoy this planet. And if you enjoyed this episode and my work in general, I hope you'll support Care More Be Better and keep it ad-free. You can become a Patreon member for as little as $2 a month, which both motivates me to keep going and helps cover show costs because, yep, that's right. 
Creating quality content is not free. Visit caremorebebetter.com slash support for all the ways you can become a member and support the show. You'll feel good about doing it and every contribution in financial support or positive action inspires me to keep at this hard work. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and be better. We can regenerate earth. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.